Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead. Take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate Sports Podcast Hang Up and Listen for the week of November 24th, 2014. On this week's show, we'll discuss Odell Beckham Jr.'s amazing catch for the New York Giants and the aesthetics of the one-handed grab. Author and former Broncos receiver Nate Jackson will join us to talk about the DEA's investigation into prescription drug use in NFL locker rooms and what drug enforcement agents are likely to find there. We'll assess whether there's merit to Adrian Peterson's appeal of his indefinite suspension, and we'll ponder if NBA Commissioner Adam Silver is turning into Roger Goodell. Spooky. (laughs) And in our bonus segment for Slate Plus members, we'll talk about strategies for watching football on Thanksgiving. Very important for me this year. A lot of football. Uh, It is. It's been a while since we did a football-y type show, Um, but it's appropriate given that Across from me is a man who's written a book about football. It's called A Few Seconds of Panic. He's also written a book about Scrabble, which we're not discussing today. It's called Word Freak. He's also on NPR's All Things Considered on Fridays. It's Stefan Fatsis. How are you, Stefan? Josh, you mixed things up there. Different intro. I did. Sitting up Mm. the New Jersey Turnpike from us. It's good. Not counting cars. Mm -hmm. Do you uh, support Simon or are you more of a Garfunkel man? Have we had this conversation before? Uh, I feel like Garfunkel's in the conversation for best member of Simon and Garfunkel. Yeah, definitely. He's, you know, you can't talk Simon without talking Garfunkel, except if you talk Simon's solo career. (laughs) The man in the gabardine suit is a spy. Now, it's not just up the New Jersey Turnpike. There are highways, and not just highways to get here. Also, hate to lay this on you, there are some byways. (laughs) Love a byway. Yeah. 
Byways are sort of the Garfunkel. There's a crossing, too, depending if you go across Staten Island. Well, byways are also like the ensuing of ensuing kickoff. You never hear a, you never hear a highway you know, without... Or you never hear a byway without a highway. I'm sorry, guys. I'm going to be awake for 12, maybe 13 more hours today, and I am not going to amuse myself as much as when I said byways... Or the Garfunkel of Highways. That's Bye. good. That's it. It's like three logical leaps and I knew what I was talking about, so it was very appealing to this me. This is a good transition into Whimsy Watch. But first, he's the host of Slate's Daily Podcast, The Just with Mike Pesca. i got to get that plug in for you, Pesca. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you. All right. Fans of the soccer might have enjoyed seeing Caleb Sturgis do the Rabona onside kick. I love a Rabona onside kick. Did you see that, Stephen? I did. I saw that. Is that... Whimsy watch. How does that, is that whimsy? I thought it was dumb because it didn't work. <laughs> whimsy and can was, be dumb. It wasn't a good execution of the, of the, of the kick. Well, it's not dumb if it doesn't work. It could be a great idea that's poorly executed. It was poorly mm. executed, which was sad because I wanted it to take a better bounce. It just kind of trickled into Josh Gordon's hands. It wasn't Josh Gordon though, was it? It might have been. It no, I mean, he was playing, he was playing the Broncos. Playing the Broncos. It wasn't Josh, Josh Gordon. Gordon. It was CJ Anderson's hands. Yeah. Yeah. They're very soft. I say whimsy, getting us back on track. Um, T.Y. Hilton cradling the ball like his newborn babe, like his daughter. Is that whimsy, Mike, or more sentiment touching? touching? No, that was touching. That was nice. That was touching. That was like the sort of... Weepy. His voice uh, was cracking. But what did he say? It was lovely. Yeah. It was. Lovely, not whimsy. Yeah. Some people were nominating, I think, all of the like... Bills riding around on snowmobiles and Buffalo picking each other up to get to the airport to go to Detroit for their snowdow game. I think for me, I'm not trying to be doctrinaire about the whimsy, but the whimsy, mm-hmm. the the whole point of this is trying to find whimsy on an NFL field. Yeah, yeah. off field whimsy that doesn't count. But but also like necessary means to uh, get around like the only mode of transportation available to you. That's not whimsy. That's it. That's necessity. If that game had been played in Buffalo and they hadn't shoveled the field <laughs> in order to play whimsy. it before playing it, whimsy. Yeah, that would have been very whimsical. Highly yeah. whimsical. Necessity is the mother of non-whimsy. Could I interrupt you with some uh, a whimsy nominee? Oh yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I think it was when Aaron Rodgers found uh, his receiver, the non-composer Richard Rodgers, in the corner. And just the way he was so alone, but just the unfazed nature of Rodgers' entire body language. Like, this is the easiest thing I will ever do to catch this ball. And in fact, it was. Yeah, he he winged it. Aaron did, like, 35 or 40 yards all the way across the field. And the dude was just standing all by himself. It was It was right. highly comical. That was whimsy. Yeah, he, Good whimsy nominee. Yes, he sold it. He sold it because he just kept the arms to the side at the last moment. Didn't like get poised or anything. It's like, oh, there's a football. There's a football. I've caught the football. If he had been lying down in the end zone, yeah. would yeah. that have been more whimsical or less whimsical? I don't know. Hit by a snowmobile. Do you know T.Y. Hilton? Do you know what the T.Y. stands for? Thank you. No, that, that should be. Well, I'll give you a hint. His real name, T.Y., is Eugene Marquise or maybe Marcus. What? So his father's name is Tyrone. So he took the T.Y. in honor of his father, but T.Y. Okay. Does he use periods? That's cool, man. Yeah, he does. All right. Moving along. That was a yes. long whimsy watch, but great whimsy nominee, Mike. Amazing. Thanks, Amazing man. job. On Sunday night in New Jersey, Giants rookie Odell Beckham Jr. ran down the sideline, was grabbed by Cowboys corner Brandon Carr, broke away, leaped into the air, stretched his right arm back as far as it would go, and snagged a throw from Eli Manning, 
with just three fingers as he was tumbling back into the end zone. NBC's Chris mm. Collinsworth instantly said, that's maybe the greatest catch I've ever seen in my life. While Al Michael said, it's in the conversation, Mike. No, he didn't. He did. <laughs> he said it was in the no, conversation. In the conversation. And then he cited you. <laughs> he did. It went from a TV moment to an internet meme within minutes, with Beckham's contorted pose getting photoshopped into every conceivable image. My personal favorite, the one where he's on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel reaching back to touch the hand of God. Uh, post-human Darren Ravel reports that Odell Beckham already signing uh, photos at a local mall for $39 of the catch. you got to monetize that, man. <laughs> Wait, did you call Darren Ravel a post-human, like cyborg? I did. Okay. Mm-hmm. I think I was uh, Deadspin. I think Deadspin has coined that. I like yeah. it. Yeah. Um, okay, so Whimsy Watch, we, we did it earlier. That's all well and good. But this one play for me, and I, I don't mean to exaggerate, but this is true. It was true for me. It brought back a kind of unmitigated joy to watching football that I hadn't had this year. And that's partly because the Saints are four and six, but not entirely. Because the Saints are four and six. Um, but this is the kind of moment where the score doesn't matter. The particulars of the game don't matter. The Giants lost to the Cowboys, by the way. But there's this pure aesthetic brilliance, Mike. It reminds you of what sports can be in an, an instant. That's right. And I did not, it didn't bring me back because all year I've been loving football, even though the local squads are terrible. Um, I guess I've been... It brought me up to your level. Well, I've been thinking about how much I've been loving it because I think that this was the year, I don't know, with the publication of Steve Amon's books and I've been on a couple panels and I don't know, the conversation about, in the conversation about football is, you know, it's so often lost what a strategically and aesthetically and athletically pleasing endeavor this is. And my kids are getting more and more into it. Like they really want to know details and plays. And I love explaining it to them. A couple weeks ago in London, it was that game with the Lions against the Falcons, right? Am I getting, was the Lions the other team? Yeah, it was two teams, yeah, yeah, yeah. Jaguars, it Lions. Was... So somebody was in London. <laughs> and this year when the games on Thursday night, they started off on the broadcast network. CBS, and then they've shifted to the NFL network. And when they went away from my free CBS, I said to myself, oh, that's a shame. Anyway, loving football this year. And I really do think that the best thing about football, the thing that you could show anyone who doesn't understand sports, but just understands that humans aren't supposed to do things like that is a, is an amazing catch. And receivers have gotten so much better. And Antonio Brown, you know, there used to be Larry Fitzgerald used to make catches and Calvin Johnson is a good receiver, but he uses his bulk. But the hands of these guys are just so amazing and so transcendent. And you could show it to, I think, anyone from any culture and they would say, impossible. I think you don't even have to make a value judgment, though, Mike, on, you know, whether football is good for society or not to say that the primetime games have just been shit this year. So that's partly why I haven't experienced this moment of oh, transcendence. I see. Um, that, you know, if you if you look at the score lines on the Thursday and Sunday night games, they've just been absolutely horrible and not anything to make you stick around. Um, but, you know, the football catch, I think you're right. Mike, it's not just in football. I think it's unique uh, among all the major sports in the kind of grace and athleticism in kind of the face of p- physical peril that's required. And you think about some of the great catches that Lorenzo Kane and other Royals outfielders made in the playoffs. And I think no matter how great they are, there's a little something taken away by the fact that they're wearing a giant glove. Come on, dude. Like with the, with the great cricket catches, they're catching with a bare hand. There's something, and we can talk about, and we will talk about the gloves that the players wear. 
But there is something about at least the perception that they're doing this unaided by any kind of equipment that it's, makes it so spectacular. What also makes it spectacular, though, is the, is the grace, is the athleticism. You think of the plays that you mimicked when you were a kid throwing a football around with your friends. What is the one play, one play more than any other that I think gets attempted? It's getting both feet down in bounds and falling onto the ground while making the catch. That is the quintessential childhood backyard football play when you say, I am Odell Beckham, and you're in the back of the end zone, and you go up on your tippy toes, and you fall down while you're making the catch. That's what makes it so appealing. It reminds us that football isn't just the concussion and life-wrecking sport that it is, but it's also something intrinsically beautiful, that there is this tremendous athleticism that's required to play some of the positions. I mean, all the positions. And there are these uh, videos of Beckham's pregame routine where he's catching all these passes one-handed. Part of the reason that this was so fun and joyous for me is that I'm an LSU fan. Beckham also went to uh, Newman in New Orleans, the school that I went to through eighth grade. My cousin played on the high school team with him. So I, I felt a certain uh, you know connection to this, to this guy, and I'd like to see him do well. And he was making all these catches that... LSU too, amazing one-handed catch in a game against Iowa, and he was catching kickoffs with one hand, just like balls were going 75 yards in the air, just reaching out and snagging them. So it's there's something particular about this guy. He used to practice these in college with Jarvis Landry, who's now um, making great catches for the Dolphins too in the NFL. Um, but I think, you know, post-human Darren Ravel would point this out as well. Like there's, there's got to be some great marketing potential for this guy, because it is, it, it does seem like something, um, a skill that we all uh, appreciate and enjoy, and something that this dude does better than anyone else. And you know, you don't see other other people out there, you know, practicing these. I mean, he's weird, no Tobey Maguire, but I could see him doing some sort of Spider Man thing. I hope it's not for bet.com. See, I think that the, the transcendent things, the things that uh, sports are, it doesn't even matter if you know the games, the things that we see where we go, wow, are, you know, the faster, mm-hmm. higher, stronger. Now, if you look at faster, it's amazing, but without the numbers on the screen, would the world's fastest man, would the world's best sprinter be so impressive? I mean, actually, I don't know that you could sit... Usain Bolt is a compelling-looking person, just how he looks and how he acts. But you do need the context of the guys he's next to and, you know, the numbers clicking down. If you had just watched a a very accomplished NCAA meet, it wouldn't seem less fast or more fast. The human brain can't even calculate the differences. Tenths of seconds. I mean, hundreds of seconds. That's right. right. Now, if you look at stronger on the NFL field, they're extremely strong men. They're bashing into each other. You can't tell. And the World's Strongest Man competition, the way to, you know, show how strong these strong men are, not just their body, it's the thing they're carrying. So they understand. Right. They understand the visuals. Let's put a plane there. Let's put a giant barrel there. The catch, the higher of it. So it's not just leaping through the air. The most amazing things in sports are the slam dunk, the amazing catch in the outfield. Not a home run in baseball. It's the amazing, you know, uh, Kansas City Royals catch in the outfield and a receiver's catch. So you have the leaping and then you have the manual dexterity and then football as the extra thing that you talked about, Josh, 
you have the physical peril. So even if it's not that the guy gets popped at the end, just the fact that unlike basketball and when once Michael Jordan or LeBron James is aloft, he's usually not being harassed. And unlike baseball, where there's no one in the outfield to harass you, you know, in football, guys are draped all over you. And that's another aspect of the catch that this guy was, you know, engaged in hand fighting all the way down the field. And so that's why I think a catch like this is the pinnacle of uh, sports. Gloves play a role. The NFL calls them gloves with tactified surfaces. Um, the tactified. Tack on tactified. Not tackified. Tactified. I like that. Tactified. Not tackified. Yeah. Players say they're tacky. It seems, yeah. sounds like something you'd use to execute strategery, something tactified. <laughs> I think we should call our friend Nate Jackson, former wide receiver and tight end in the National Football League to uh, have him weigh in on the degree of difficulty of what Odell Beckham is doing and the role of gloves. What an amazing impromptu idea. Thanks. All right, Nate uh, Jackson, you're here on the phone with us, miraculously. How are you, sir? I'm doing great. How are you doing? Good. We uh, wanted a professional football player's opinion on uh, the Odell Beckham catch. So professionally, what is your professional football NFL opinion? How good was the Beckham catch? Like, how easily would you have made that catch? I mean, me, you know, I, I like to think I would have made that catch, but, but it is a very, very difficult catch to make, and it owes itself to the tackiness of those gloves, for sure. But you see Odell Beckham, they show him in warm-ups, making crazy one-handed catches. He does that on a daily basis, and so he's comfortable with it, you know? And so in that position, he just stuck his hand up there, and it stuck to his gloves, but it's because he trains that way. So tell us about the gloves. I actually didn't wear gloves at all when I was in high school or college or at the very beginning of my professional career. It wasn't until I got to Denver that I put on those gloves. And once I did, I never took them off. They're, if you already have good hands, if you already have strong hands, if you already have good ball awareness, um, then those gloves just make it all the more. Um, they're really, really tacky. There's kind of a, a rubber, synthetic, rubbery um, grip on the hands and on the fingers and the ball really just sticks to it and if you have a feel for that ball anyway it's just going to make it a tenfold but in in terms of athleticism and we were talking before we called you about just the pure balletic beauty of beckham reaching behind his head falling backwards sticking his hand up and having the ball nestled between two or three of his fingers um, I mean, that that's we were talking about how that is the sort of quintessential football play. It is what we love to see. It's not some guy getting laid out when he goes across the middle and then the stadium going silent. It's that's the reminder that this is a beautiful game. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, and the, the thing that is also really impressive when I see a great catch, I'm inspired because I know how much it takes to even get to the point where you can catch the ball. Anyway, there's so many things you have to go through to get open in the NFL and to get yourself in a position to make that catch. And you saw what he did was fought off a defender who was, who was committing a penalty in the act and was able to throw his hand up like that. And he's moving so fast as well. And so his eyes are bouncing around in his skull. His brain is, is moving around. And so for him to be able to steady his motor skills like that and throw his hand up over his head, really beyond his own field of vision, and then catch it with two fingers like that, it's a beautiful thing. Yeah, and to pick it up against the night sky and the background and, you know, you have to catch it, you know, at its peak. And it's not like, 
oh, God, it's not like he had six tries for this and they put the best one on, you know, GoPro videos on YouTube or whatever that's called. It's really amazing. And the amazing thing is, tell me, it does seem to me that we are, you know, experiencing a generation of wide receivers. Hey, maybe it's because of gloves, but I tend to think that are the gloves really that much better than stick them? It seems like the wide receivers are just so great at catching the ball, better than they've ever been. Yeah, better than they've ever been. I agree. Um, they've been doing it since from a very early age. The repetition, the way kids practice now, they have a lot more balls that they've caught over the years just in practice and playing with their friends and during games. And the passing game is much more stressed now. But I think what you're seeing is like, you know, the evolution of the athlete's mind as well. There is an element of the spidey sense that goes on when you're out on a field or you're on a court and you're competing. And you can have an awareness of things going on around you that you can't see with your eyes. You can feel things happening. And when we have cameras trained on everyone at all times now, you can really see when they're finding that zone and they find themselves in this really, you know, this other dimension where they can almost feel things happen before they happen. Uh, and Beckham kind of came back down to earth uh, in the second half of the game. He looked like he got kneed in the, in the head or elbowed in the head. They said it was a quote-unquote back injury. But I'm not sure about that. But the state of grace does not last for more than uh, a couple minutes in the NFL, it often seems like. Um, and so we're now going to talk to you about um, how players deal with the pain of everything that isn't making a wonderful uh, one-hand catch. Um, so you have written for The New York Times and elsewhere about um, how you use marijuana to deal with pain when you're in that NFL um, and a lot of players, I think, make the same decision and then others use kind of stronger stuff. And last weekend, the DEA did unannounced spot checks in at least three NFL locker rooms. Uh, DEA spokesman Rusty Payne, who I just wanted to say the name Rusty Payne. (laughs) Rusty Payne. He's the the man. He said... The DEA agents were interviewing team doctors as part of an ongoing investigation into potential violations of the Controlled Substances Act. They were looking to see if team doctors had documentation for controlled substances in their possession. The DEA is sticking its nose in the locker rooms now due to several lawsuits filed by players who allege teams misused prescription drugs. There was a suit in 2011 about Toradol, a painkiller, and players saying they weren't warned about the potential side effects about taking a blood thinner that would mask the presence of injury. Another suit filed this year in federal court in California. The Times, the New York Times reports that hundreds of former players said team doctors often dispensed painkillers without a prescription with little regard for a player's medical history. Um, I'm sure you can relate to what I've just been saying. Like, What can you tell us about the way that um, painkillers are dispensed in NFL locker rooms? The, the sad kind of weird dichotomy about our, our obsession with football is last night when we were watching Odell Beckham do all those amazing things and uh, announcers were fawning over him and everyone was loving what we, he was doing, how he was sacrificing his body, that sacrifice ends in him not being able to get out of bed this morning you know, and having to deal with a whole lot of pain. And like you said, everyone does it differently. I didn't like pain pills, but they were very easy to get, um, whether it's through the team doctors or whether it's through a, a fanboy doctor, a local doctor who wants to be involved with players and wants to help them out. So once you develop a taste for pain pills from your own team, if they don't give you enough, it's easy to go off and get your own. Um, but the pain has to be managed in one way or the other. And the medical, I think the whole medical, um, the whole medical field in the NFL is counterintuitive 
to the um, medical process that we find elsewhere in the country. I mean, these guys are sworn to do no harm and protect their patients, protect their confidentiality. There are HIPAA laws. None of these things are adhered to in the NFL. These guys patch them up and send them back out on the field. And I think it's compassion, actually, from these doctors and from these trainers that leads them to give these guys pain pills recklessly because they know they're in pain. They know they're going to do whatever it takes to get back on the field. They know their window to play is only three, three and a half years. That's the average career. And so these trainers and doctors who put guys back on the field every day who aren't ready to go probably feel really guilty about that anyway and want to dull the pain. And so though it might come from good intentions, it ends up turning these guys into drug-dependent young males who leave the NFL with a bankroll full of money, no job, um, no itinerary, no diploma, and some legitimate orthopedic and brain damage pains to mask. And so I think it's the recipe for disaster. That's about the most charitable I've ever heard you be toward NFL team doctors and, and doctors outside of the locker room, Nate, uh, much as there's also a recognition that trainers' jobs depend on if not making sure the players are healthy, then giving the coaches the illusion that the players are healthy, thanks to Toradol and other painkillers. But the question for me then becomes, with the DEA sticking its nose onto team buses and into visiting locker rooms to determine whether doctors are dispensing prescriptions out of state illegally, is that a course that you think can in some ways benefit the NFL to help clean up this process? Yeah, I think, I think actually maybe what the doctors and trainers are hoping for is a little bit of help, you know, in fighting back against this really intense power structure in the NFL that only cares about winning. These doctors don't feel empowered enough to speak up on their patients' behalf. These trainers don't feel empowered enough to say, hey, no, coach, he's not ready. In fact, he has a brain injury. These guys don't feel comfortable doing that stuff, and I think it's because they're swept up in the momentum of the game and they see, you know, what the pressure is like on these coaches to win. Like, the reason why I'm kind of softening my stance here is because I believe that all the guys I came across, I mean, although they might not be close buddies of mine, they were good. I think they were good guys. You know, they were well-intentioned um, professionals trying to do their best and were caught up in a really oppressive kind of mean-spirited system that chews guys up and spits them out. And the DEA getting involved, I think, might end up helping them stand up and doing their job how they were supposed to do it, you know, right off the bat. But there's this whole culture of toughness. I mean, there has to be, and you hear that, you know, the reason the Cowboys rally around Tony Romo was playing through pain, and Matthew Stafford showed that he had metal and toughness and became a leader through playing through pain. I mean, playing through pain seems to be, especially with quarterbacks, but everyone else, the prerequisite for having your teammates respect you. And uh, I don't know if it can ever be stopped at the point of supply when you have that kind of demand. Well, that's the thing. I mean, players are going to play no matter what. They're going to push through it. They know that pain and injury is a badge of honor. That's how you earn respect in that game, sadly, is playing uh, through injury and through getting beat up. And for that reason, we need our medical professionals to protect us as players somehow because the coaches are not going to do it. The media is not going to do it. The fans are not going to do it, and as teammates, we're not going to do it. And so the only guys that are going to supply any kind of rational thought or level with these dudes about what they're doing to their bodies are the doctors who know the most about the human body. And as you know, uh, Stephen, from being here in Denver, the doctors are basically part of the team. 
they're just just one of the guys who are just you know trying to impress the owner, trying to impress the coach, and you know trying to hold on to their job. They're all just holding on to their jobs in the NFL because they believe they're so lucky to have this job anyway that they'll do whatever they can to stick around, and that means you know, just appeasing the powers that be, sadly. So are you a party to any of these lawsuits, whether the pain uh, medication suits or the concussion suits? I'm not. I've been recruited to be part of several of them, but I've kind of tried to maintain my neutrality as far as being able to write about these things and uh, be honest about them um, without having a stake in it. I also don't feel any cognitive symptoms as of now. My brain feels okay. I think a lot of that is because I found something else that I'm passionate about, and a lot of guys don't have that. You know, football was it. That was what we were told was our ticket, and once that's over, well, what else are you going to do, you know? And then the next thing you know, you got lawyers calling you, asking you to be a part of a lawsuit, telling you that you deserve money, telling you that you were lied to, telling you that this is, you know, your thing to get involved. And so a lot of guys jump into it, but um, I haven't. I'm not. Well, well what do you think about players trying to get some sort of remedy through the courts, like with these Tordal lawsuits, with the pain stuff in particular? Like, do you think that that's a fair remedy, given all of, like, you know, stuff that you laid out before about the different incentives and how the, everything worked in the locker room? Do you think it's fair for players to say, you know what, I'm going to file a suit about the way that pain medication was dispensed in the and, locker and, room. And also, Nate, as someone who lined up to get a Toradol shot to play in order to keep playing. Right, but I wasn't a doctor. I didn't know what I was putting in my body. They, they knew what they were putting in my body. I think that the, med- the whole medical um, field, the whole healthcare system in the NFL does need to be refined. It needs to be tweaked, and these lawsuits are a product of that need. I think that it's totally fine that these guys want to go after them in court. That's the only way that you're going to get the NFL to acquiesce to open up their wallets, to open up their hearts, to act like they care about these former players. you got to know this game really, really chews these guys up. I mean, you see uh, the best athletes in our country, on our planet, running around like gazelles out there, and two years later they can't move. And then three years later they're out of the league, and ten years down the line they're having trouble walking, you know, and remembering where their keys are. It's, it's turning the best, the most fit people in our society into the least fit, in a matter of 10 to 15 years, and, and so there's something to that. And the players obviously will still play. They'll still risk what, their lives. They'll still risk their brains. But I think having you know, a little bit more control in the players' hands about you know, what they do to their body, a little more information about what they're risking, and a little less pressure on them from the medical staff to get out on the field before they're ready. Which is right, which is why having more oversight, whether it comes from the government or whether it comes from sort of genuine soul-searching and reform inside the league, whether that's from pressure from the Players Association or a a reform of how contracts are guaranteed, that's what it's going to take. Because on its own, the system works too well and the revenue shows no signs of abating. So some pressure has to be applied. And if the DEA is one way to apply pressure, great. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I think that... As long as these teams' um, healthcare staff and their training staff are affiliated with the team, there's going to be you know some bad decisions made about the health of the individual. Um, I think that the future of the of healthcare in the NFL could be an independent medical body overseen by you know joint a joint task between the league and the union, but um, that doesn't where the head trainer doesn't report to the head coach. Uh, every day, you know, when they're not in cahoots and they don't feel pressure to get these guys back on the field because the team, you know, needs them. All right, Nate, thanks for joining us. Uh, His book, Nate's book, Slow Getting Up, is out in paperback. Now you should pause the podcast, go out and buy it, unpause it now, 
and hear me say that Nate had uh, 200 catch seasons, two 100 catch seasons, not a 200 catch season, and uh, in college. Um, so he knows what he speaks with regards to Odell Beckham and with regards to playing in pain. Have you ever seen the video, the clip of Nate leaping over the crossbar and doing a full 360 <laughs> landing on his feet inbounds and making the catch? I thought that was a Powerade commercial. He caught the ball in his teeth. Nate also starred as the stunt <laughs> retriever in Airbud 3. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Nate. Thanks for being on the show, man. Hey, guys. All right, now time for a quick uh, plug for Slate Plus. It is Slate's uh, membership program. You can subscribe for a year for 50 bucks or on a monthly basis for 5 bucks. You can do so at slate.com slash plus. The kinds of things you get as a member include extra segments on the Hang Up and Listen podcast and other Slate podcasts. You get bonus extra podcasts. You get uh, early access to Slate events. Um, and there's a Walking Dead podcast that's starting. Our producer, Mike Volo, is involved. It, uh, if you look at the ratings for TV each week, there are a lot of people that watch this show, like more than anything except football. So if you watch football and you watch Walking Dead, you are like the mainstream American human being and you should be congratulated for having the uh, exact taste that you should have and if you so you're saying that pity pitiless zombies walking around in a fog uh exposing their brains and football have something in common i don't know if they have anything in common except that they're popular i don't see what you're getting okay. at okay but um if you go to slate.com slash hang up plus you can um subscribe you can get uh, a couple weeks for free and you can register your support for hang up and listen so please do so all right, our last uh, segment of the day, Adrian Peterson has been suspended without pay by the NFL for at least the rest of the 2014 season after he pled no contest to a misdemeanor charge of reckless assault. Peterson admits to beating his four-year-old child with a switch, causing horrifying wounds on the child's leg and his testicles. The Vikings running back says he feels very sorry for hurting his son and that he now wants to get back on the field as soon as possible. In a letter to Peterson, Commissioner Roger Goodell notes various aggravating circumstances that the injury was inflicted on a child and that he has not shown meaningful remorse in saying that he can't even apply at Peterson for reinstatement to the league until April 15th of next year. The NFL Players Association is appealing that ruling, saying that the league created an entirely new and obfuscated disciplinary process and that despite the fact that this incident happened in May, the league used changes to its personal conduct policy that were made in August after Ray Rice punched his then fiance in the face and the league got tough on domestic abuse as a result. Unfortunately for Peterson, the league's collective bargaining agreement enshrines Roger Goodell as the party to whom players can appeal decisions made by Roger Goodell. So it's been a while since we talked about the NFL and its discipline procedure. Um, they kind of had their uh, feet felt held to the fire there for a few months and then just kind of nothing's been happening with Ray Rice and with Peterson. Peterson's now obviously making noise and an appeal will be held. There's a different appeal process for Ray Rice. There's going to be a, a neutral uh, third-party arbitrator. Um, but it seems to me, uh, Mike, with this Peterson suspension that Goodell is back to the old Goodell, the guy before the domestic abuse when um, you know people have now said that he's soft on violence against women. You know, Remember back a few years ago when people said that he was uh, punishing people beyond the bounds of the collective bargaining agreement. Yeah, no, uh, this, is, this is a terrible case to make this stance, but Roger Goodell is wrong. Roger Goodell is taking, uh, I mean, what he's trying to do is 
okay, let's look at it charitably. He's uh, giving the justice he thinks is just. But I think he's trying to burnish his credentials as a guy who's on the right side of public opinion and the kind of guy who won't countenance a horrible action. And while Adrian Peterson's action was horrible, he wasn't sentenced to jail. The courts maybe have a uh, better way of dealing with this than the NFL commissioner. And it seems entirely arbitrary. So... This is this, but this is what petty dictators do. They don't do unpopular things, right? This is how Putin acts. Also, you do popular things, so everyone's going to say, "Good, you smote the bad man." But it's totally unfair to Adrian Peterson, as horrendous an action as uh, that was. You just compare Roger. I know, and I want to apologize to Putin for that. But yes, wait, Stefan. Don't you mean? I was actually just going to say the same thing. Don't you mean? Did you just compare Vladimir Putin to (laughs) Roger Goodell? Incursion into Crimea, incursion um, into London. There are a lot of parallels there. I mean, Stefan, do you agree with uh, the uh, the crux, the gist? Well, the, the, part, the part of the problem here falls on the NFL Players Association for granting Roger Goodell this authority. And I think we can't overlook that. In collective bargaining, the Players Association got steamrolled last time around. And Goodell wound up with the ability to be judge, jury, executioner for these cases. And right. he Goodell, has... Goodell didn't just decide that if you appeal, you're going to appeal to me. That's in the CBA. It's in the CBA. And you know, that doesn't mean that the way that Goodell has exercised his ability here is correct or just or even within the bounds of the agreements that have been carved out between the union and the league office. And clearly, the NFL wouldn't be reexamining the entire extrajudicial process for punishing players because of the Ray Rice case if it weren't completely screwed up to begin with. But what has happened here is that Goodell has found a case that is almost ironclad in its ability to serve public opinion. How can you defend Adrian Peterson? He beat a child. This is a terrific PR opportunity for Roger Goodell to sort of re-seize the moral high ground in terms of how the league disciplines players. And I wrote this um, during the kind of height of the Rice case, um, my belief that Goodell shields the teams and the team owners from decisions that they really should be making and that this is really a Minnesota Vikings decision. Got him. Um, you know, we it's, – it's easy for us to say, you know, the, the league shouldn't suspend him. It's a misdemeanor and the court of law, you know, this was something that didn't happen on the football field, put the guy back on the field. But you can understand if you're the owner of a team that you wouldn't want this guy to represent you. But, but that you can also be... understand, Josh <laughs> – but the Vikings do. <laughs> Bad example. Sure, but, but make them own that decision is what I'm saying. Don't put it in the hands of the petty dictator who can come out right. on his soapbox. Well, and like you're saying, that's why we pay him $40 million. Sure. I mean, the owners, the the owners us, pay yeah. him to insulate them from public opinion. And it works incredibly well because everything positive or negative that's said about any kind of discipline thing, it all comes down to Roger Goodell. And that changed a little bit around, you know, there being pressure on Jerry Richardson or on Ziggy Wolf to, like, put Greg Hardy on the sidelines during the, you know, or or put Adrian Peterson on the sidelines during these cases. And that, I think, was really appropriate and refreshing to see that some of the pressure was being put on the owners that way. But that's kind of gone away. We've forgotten that. And it's now all the attention is back on Goodell again. And let's, uh, you know, transition to talking about Adam Silver, because in his, you know, 
first year, I think it's it's still in his first year, right, Stefan, of mm-hmm. being NBA com- commissioner. He has this um, Sterling for punishing Sterling reputation. Um, GQ, I just got something in my inbox before your recording, has named him like the rookie of the year in all across all humanity. Um, he's it's a list. It, it is a list. Um, he <laughs> he's one year he, old. He banned uh, Sterling from the league because of his racist comments. Um, he is saying that we should, you know, have legalized sports betting, which you know, good progressive people like us are in favor of. And now um, he has punished uh, a guy, Jeffrey Taylor, for the Charlotte Hornets, who was, uh, you know, pled to misdemeanor domestic violence. Um, he's punished him for 24 games. And this is a very Goodellian kind of move. And the question is, does Adam Silver have this reputation of being a commissioner who's doing things better and smarter than Roger Goodell for good reason, for like substantive reasons? Or is it because of his self-presentation and because of the way that he, but because of the decisions that have come across his desk and because of the way that he's presented his decision-making process? Oh, I think that, I think that the Sterling thing was surprising and it was, it was a great set of circumstances for him because he got to uh, lash out against an extremely unpopular owner who's been in the thorn of the side forever. I think the, the gambling thing is something he didn't have to do, so credit to him. Right, that's different. That's different. And I think that the, this Jeffrey Taylor, I've never even heard of Jeffrey Taylor. He must have been way down on the bench. No, but I mean... Well, that helps if yeah. you want to suspend a guy for right. 24 games. It's not going to get think it's. I think it's outcry. different. I think, you know... When you start and you take over and they, you can't say, look, you've had this 12-year history of countenancing this thing. Look, it's a new moment and he's reacting correctly in the new moment. I think Goodell is different and he's trying to cover up and he has a game that's based on violence. And I don't think that what he did with Adrian Peterson will do anything to change even the conversation within his little I don't mean conversation, actions within his little niche of the world. I don't think beating your children in the NFL is going to change one way or another. But with Silver, different sport, 12 players per team. You know, you're not dealing with these essentially huge huge corporations. Basketball has also, for years now, been the more progressive of the sports. I think actually what Silver's doing in basketball does have a chance to change the culture of basketball a little bit in a way that Goodell stuff does. The NFL is so conscious of its own image, the self-created image as this perceived moral trendsetter and arbiter and force for public good. And it's so worried about how it positions every action that it takes that everything ends up looking like crisis management PR. Um, There's an attempt to satisfy every constituency. So the NFL comes off looking self-aggrandizing and presumptuous and politically correct, but winds up looking like it lacks in common sense and decency and humility. I mean, we should be praising Roger Goodell for punishing Adrian Peterson, right? I mean, even if it's extra legal, even if he only pled to a misdemeanor, that's not a terrible thing that Adrian Peterson has to sit out part or all of an NFL season for these behaviors. Um, He's already been out for the whole season. Right. Well, that's not a bad thing. Um, You know, the difference between Goodell and Silver, though, it is a matter of perception. You know, Silver is Scarsdale born and he's a corporate lawyer. But he looks like a man of the people because far more than Goodell, he is. I mean, he he comes off as kind of normal and approachable. You can have a conversation with him. He doesn't come off as this sort of imperial figurehead. Now, the NFL treats everything, and this is the crux of the problem, like it invented everything, like it invented jurisprudence. Um, 
the NBA statement on Jeffrey Taylor, as Deadspin correctly pointed out, was a direct and deliberate rebuttal of the way the NFL has handled the Ray Rice and these other cases even to the point that it noted that it interviewed Jeffrey Taylor and the woman that was involved in the incident separately, as opposed to the NFL, who dragged Ray Rice and his then wife, I guess, into the same room for an interrogation. On the other hand, what Adam Silver is doing here with Jeffrey Taylor is a complete 180 to the way that the the NBA has handled previous domestic violence cases. There's a long list of cases under at the beginning of uh, Adam Silver's tenure and under David Stern, where nothing happened. Uh, the blog Gothic Ginobili, uh, written by Aaron McGuire, there's a post from July that detailed more than a dozen cases involving players who have some big names in the league. Kendrick Perkins, Jared Sullinger, Andre Blatch, Jordan Lance Stevenson. They were all involved in cases, some of them domestic violence, um, that ended up with no legal action, but also no NBA action either. Well, I don't think that's necessarily the best argument because the NBA would just say, well, the you know we've changed and the society has changed. And so we're going to punish this guy for longer because that's the right thing to do. Right. But now I it's think, the right thing to do. Yeah. But I think the better argument against what Silver did is that this is explicitly against what's in the NBA's own CBA, which says you can be punished a maximum of 10 games if you're convicted or plead guilty to a violent felony. Um, And this was a misdemeanor and he was punished for 24 games. So Michelle Roberts, the new head of the NBA Players Association, seems like a pretty ironclad case to me um, that this is, you know, way excessive. And if they want to you know, say that you can punish a guy 24 games for, you know, misdemeanor domestic violence, then you have to bargain that. But, you know, somebody like Roberts or DeMaury Smith of the NFLPA, people who, you know, the people who have to go out in public and make these arguments in favor of Peterson and Rice, you're put in the position of defending some terrible acts by people who are not sympathetic. And so I think that that is the risk that you run as a players association. There's an article about this by Julia Masser in the New York Times is that, you know, we might, you know, defend the the idea that you can, you know, commit a horrible act, but also be, um, you know, a, vic- a victim of unfair justice. But I think that's probably not going to be the, the vast public opinion of how this stuff goes. And I think, you know, we always talk about, you know, Goodell is doing all this stuff for public relations. But I think what Silver points up is that Goodell's just really mm-hmm. bad at it because Silver is doing all this stuff for public relations too, and he's just he's just better at it because he's more direct. He's more sincere. He seems he, he seems more he sincere. Seems more sincere. Probably is more sincere, but it at least seems more sincere. And with Goodell, you always get the sense that they're scheming, that they're not telling you the whole truth of what's going on. I didn't say that he was a liar. Um, but <laughs> that you just don't get the sense that that they're being upfront with you. You get the sense that they are making it up as they go along. You don't, as Demora Smith said, right, the head of the player association. And so I think it's totally fair to say that Silver is doing this because you know the the Taylor suspension or anything else that he's doing it because um, he wants to curry you know favor in the press or he wants the NBA fans to be happy and. Um, He's just doing a really, really good job of it so far. We're good. We're good. We're good. All right. Now it is time for After Balls. And uh, Odell Beckham Jr. was wearing the Nike XXL Vapor Jet Glove. Not a hang up and listen sponsor, but I'm still going to, you know, I'm going to tell you $40 to $80. You can buy them 
online, Nike XXL, Vaporjet Glove, catch like Odell Beckham. There's also... What if your hand, what if your hand size is an XXL? Oh, the, you can only buy the XXL oh, if you okay. want to be like Odell Beckham. I'm yeah. sorry. Uh, Stefan, you sent around uh, this thing from sneakerreport.com where they were evaluating the stickiness of various brands of gloves, and their number one was the Cutters X40 SeaTac Revolution, which is supposed to be like what you wear if you're cutting glass. That's how it was invented. The guy liked the feel of glass cutter gloves and then had someone create a, some sort of polymer that mimics it. The football will be cut to shreds, but you can catch it with one hand. Yeah. Don't try to catch glass pretty- with the Nike XXLs. The cutters. There's a pretty... There's a pretty limited there's a pretty limited vocabulary available to the glove namers. Like you'll never get Danny's gloves. <laughs> but <laughs> Stefan, you wanted to uh go back to the pre-glove the days of yore with the stickum. Stickum. Yeah. Goopy, gloppy, brownish, yellow, sticky stuff that players in the 70s particularly Fred Bolitnikoff famous for it wide receiver for the uh for the Oakland Raiders for putting the stuff all over their forearms and their gloves and their jerseys. Right. So you've never seen Otto Beckham make the one forearm catch where you just stick out your arm and it just adheres. And fly paper. (laughs) Or or the the quarterback hits him before he makes his cut, but it just sticks to the back (laughs) of the jersey. (laughs) Unwittingly, he runs down the field. No longer longer legal. (laughs) Not legal. Um, But we're going to do stickers. Banned in 1981. (laughs) What happened was Fred Bolitnikoff was found dangling from a glue strip (laughs) on top of the ceiling. (laughs) Help me! Help me! It's like a mouse in your basement. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. All right, if you guys will indulge me before we get into our stickums, I wanted to let everyone know that the great Zalmo Beatty was inducted posthumously into the College of Basketball Hall of Fame in Kansas City. Over the weekend, Zalmo played at Prairie View A&M. He averaged 25 and 20 over four years, 25 points, 20 rebounds. Dang. Led his team to the 1962 NAIA tournament title. Among other honorees were Grant Hill, Daryl Griffith, and Shaquille O'Neal. A bunch of stories were written saying there was some nice symmetry because Shaq's college coach uh, at LSU, Dale Brown was also inducted this weekend. But if you remember why we say remember Zalmo Beatty at the end of each show, then you will know that that was not the true symmetry of this induction ceremony. So um, I will tell you that that origin story now. We had the former NBA player Zayd Abdulaziz on our show. We were talking about the old Sports Illustrated series, The Black Athlete, A Shameful Story. Uh, Zaid was interviewed as part of that that series. Um, so during that segment, Zaid Abdulaziz talked about how he gets upset when younger players don't remember the guys who paved the way for them. And he cited a time um, when Shaquille O'Neal was on David Letterman's show, played a word association game with the host. And when asked for his instant reaction to Zalmo Beatty, Shaq said, who is that? And so the answer after this weekend is Zalmo Beatty is a college basketball Hall of Famer and Shaquille O'Neal was there to see it. So Shaquille O'Neal will remember Zalmo Beatty henceforth, as all Hang Up and Listen listeners do. Uh, all right, Mike, what is your stickum? Perhaps one day in the NBA we'll remember Anthony Davis. According to one statistics, he's having the greatest career in the history of the NBA. That statistic is per John Hollinger, the now ESPN stat guru's invented category of player efficiency rating. Anthony Davis has a per after 12 games. Now, it's only 12 games in the NFL. This would be impressive, 12 out of 16. They've played about 15% of the season, right? But he has a per of 35.9. Last time I looked, the highest per 
purr. Do they call it PR? I'm calling it purr. The highest purrs were recorded by a uh, little guy named Will Chamberlain, and he topped out at 30 point something. So there's only been about eight or so seasons ever above 30. Again, Anthony Davis, 35.9. Why? What is it about purr? Well, Purr rewards some things that Anthony Davis is good at and uh, subtracts some things that Anthony Davis is also good at not doing. It's not exactly totally crafted to fit Anthony Davis's game, but there are a lot of things about the PER rating that Anthony Davis does well. Now, I will, I will acknowledge this. There is one criticism of the PER rating that it rewards people who are high-volume shooters or even inaccurate shooters, and Anthony Davis is an incredibly accurate shooter. I mean, he doesn't shoot that far from the basket, but you know, he shoots 58% or something from the floor. Also, he shoots 80% from the line in a full season last year, he shot 79%. So that really is his free throw percentage. So imagine a guy who gets hacked as much as Shaq would have uh, if just in the natural course of things, if there was no hack-a-shack specific strategy, but this guy could nail baskets. It's pretty amazing. So to the the defensive components of Per, and one criticism of PER is defensively it undervalues guys who are great shutdown defenders, but it doesn't show up in, in steals and blocks. And steals and blocks are the two defensive stats it counts. And man, is Anthony Davis great at steals and blocks. This year he's averaging three and a half blocks per game. And what's, what he's really done to put him through the roof is he's averaging over two steals a game, 2.2, and he think he averaged around like 1.2 or 1.3 in his first couple of seasons. Um, to compare him to others, if you look up anyone who's ever averaged more than th- uh, three blocks a game and averaged more than two blo- uh, steals a game, you get guys like, well, here's the whole list. Anthony Davis this year. David Robinson and Hakeem Olajuwon three times. Don't know that Anthony Davis is going to be in that category, but he's amazing. So the last thing I'll say about uh, PER and Anthony Davis is it's based on 15. Like a good player is supposed to be 15. And so uh, Hollinger has a little bit of a rule of thumb for different numbers. So if you are a guy who's getting 20, you're a borderline all-star. If your per is 25, you're a weak MVP candidate. If your per is 27 and a half, you're a strong MVP candidate. Where he is, Anthony Davis at 35, which has never happened, a year for the ages. Can he hold it up? Let's hope so. So um, I think another factor of why his per is so high is that for somebody who has the ball as often as he does, he never turns it over. I can't remember who I saw cite this on Twitter, so I apologize. But for somebody like, it's called usage rate for how often you have the ball. Mm -hmm. For somebody who has a usage rate that high, his turnovers are just insanely low. And I think people didn't understand that or appreciate that about Chris Paul because he was always at the top of the per ratings back when people were like, isn't Darren Williams as good as Chris Paul? And the reason um, I remember reading is because the dude just never turned the ball over. Right. This is why Aaron Rodgers is one of the best quarterbacks. Indeed. And there's also a five-point bonus for only having one eyebrow. Um, Stefan. Or it's actually a negative five per eyebrow, so he's the only... (laughs) That's that's where the per comes in. It's per eyebrow. Uh, Stefan, what's your stick'em? This may reflect my own geographic shortcomings, but until I started Googling last night, all I knew about the Faroe Islands was that there is a whirlwind off of them called an O-E. That's how it's spelled, O-E. I know that because it's an acceptable two-letter word in Scrabble, and that's the Scrabble dictionary definition, a whirlwind off the Faroe Islands. O-A. I didn't even know how to pronounce it, but now I do. 
I was motivated to check out the Faroes, and I must say it sounds like a beautiful vacation spot if you're into fjords, hiking, or bird watching, because the Faroes have a national soccer team, and that team earlier this month beat Greece in qualifying for the Euro 2016 soccer tournament by a score of one to nothing in Piraeus, Greece. The Guardian reckons that this might have been the biggest upset in soccer history, or at least since pretty much every country and principality started playing international soccer and FIFA started making its largely bullshit national rankings in 1992. Greece was ranked 18th and the Faroe Islands were 187th for a difference of 169 places. Some other 169 place differences, Montserrat and Germany, the Seychelles and Argentina, Sao Tome e Principe and Brazil... That would be an all-Portuguese-speaking throwdown if they ever played. Nepal and Spain, and Fiji and the United States. The closest the Guardian could come to a 169-place win was Lebanon's 146-place upset of South Korea in 2011. So Greece has really been sucking in soccer since making the second round of the World Cup last summer. They haven't won a game in qualifying for Euro 2016. They've lost to Northern Ireland, Romania, and now the Faroe Islands. They tied against Finland. Greece suspended and then fired its Italian coach, Claudio Ranieri who had helmed Chelsea and Juventus. And play in all of Greek soccer has been suspended for two weeks after two men on a motorcycle attacked a referee. But this is about the Faroe Islands. And as a minnow And its stories go, the Faroes is a great one, especially since most people don't even know where or what the Faroe Islands are. 50,000 people, group of 18 islands in the North Atlantic, about halfway between Norway and Iceland, part of Denmark, but has operated autonomously since 1948. There's a lot of fishing. National Geographic this summer ran a feature about a campaign to end its whaling tradition which includes something called a grind in which a flotilla of small boats steers pilot whales into a bay where they're killed with knives. And there's some gruesome photos with that story. There are no whalers on the Faro team, but it does include a lawyer, an office clerk, a teacher, a student, a road surfacer, an electrician, and two carpenters, plus a few professional football players who play in Scotland, Denmark, and Sweden. One of the carpenters is the team captain, 36-year-old Frodi Benjaminson, One time, the morning after playing in a fixture against France, Benjaminson went to work, which that day included taking down the signage boards at the stadium where he had just played against France. After the Greece game, the Faroe Islands Football Association posted on Facebook an interview with Benjaminson at his construction job. Here's a clip just so we can hear some Faroese. Yeah, I'm from Benjaminson. I'm from Benjaminson. I'm from Benjaminson. The interviewer asks Frody, are you a star today? And Frody replies, no, I don't think so. This is a day like other days, a Monday at work. That's it. Frody is so Jeter-like in his humility, isn't he? All of the Faroe Islands is humble when it comes to football. UEFA's website last year published a post titled, Seven Reasons to Love Faroese Football, Number eight on the list, the post actually did have eight reasons, not seven. Number eight is remaining grounded. There's almost no stardom in the Faroe Islands. A French fan of Faroese football is quoted as saying, at any time, Simon Samuelson or Haller Hansen can walk down the streets of Torshaven without a bodyguard and you can talk to them. So if Greece had to go down in flames, it might as well have been two tiny, humble, hardworking Faroe Islands. You don't need a bodyguard in the Faroe Islands, Josh. What's your stick On Sunday in Sochi, Russia, Magnus Carlsen defended his title as world chess champion, defeating uh, Vichy Anand in game 11 of their best of 12 game match to move ahead six and a half to four and a half and clinch a victory. You know, they always say in a best of 12, whoever, you know, 
the game 11. It's always decisive. You got to get to that six and a half and the, and the best of 12. Um, after the game, Carlson tweeted two down, five to go, a reference to the seven championships he needs to surpass Emmanuel Lasker, Gary Kasparov, and Anatoly Karpov for the most world titles ever. But Carlson does not own every title in the mind sport. There's the World Chess Solving Championship, in which players compete to solve various chess problems, like two movers, three movers, more movers, helpmates, and selfmates. Then there's the World Correspondence Chess Championship, which in contrast to your standard over-the-board chess is contested by people who are not in the same room. It's sort of like words with friends, but for chess. Uh, they should just call it Chess with Friends. That would be good for marketing. On the website schemingmind.com, Craig Sadler writes, waiting for the postcard slash letter slash email, getting the move, analyzing it for hours until you find the perfect refutation, sending it back. These are the joys of correspondence chess. In a 2012 New York Times column, Dylan Loeb McLean wrote, two great over-the-board players who also played correspondence chess, Wilhelm Steinitz, the first world champion, and Joseph Blackburn, were arrested as spies at different times in the 19th century because officials mistook their chess moves for encoded messages. Wars and the time it took to send moves in an era before airplanes and computers also created problems, Dylan Loeb McLean writes. Edward Winter, a chess historian, said World War II interrupted a move by Croydon H. Jarvis that took him eight years to complete. Hope it was the right move. Long game. The greatest moment in recent correspondence chess history was Kasparov versus the world. That was a 1999 game played online. The Russian grandmaster played against uh, more than 50,000 players. Their moves were decided by a plurality vote. Each of the teams had 24 hours to make a move. The world team also had some grandmasters to offer advice, some lesser grandmasters, as well as a group called the computer chess team that used the latest algorithms to assess which move was best. The Wikipedia summary of the game notes, it was clear from a look at the voting results that although the world team was managing to pick theoretically correct moves, many rank amateurs were voting as well. Demonstrably bad moves were garnering a significant percentage of the vote, even worse on move 12. About 2.4% of the voters chose illegal moves, which did not get the world team out of check. You can really get 2.4% of the world to vote for anything now. I don't know if that really proves much. Um, the game took four months. Kasparov won in 62 moves. Nevertheless, he said, I spent more time analyzing this than any other game. Well, it did take four months. But then he added, it is the greatest game in the history of chess. The sheer number of ideas, the complexity, and the contribution it has made to chess make it the most important game ever played. Kasparov also admitted to reading the message board where the world team discussed its strategy. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> That's not fair. Whoops. <laughs> There is a World Correspondence Chess Championship, and the Magnus Carlsen of the game is Alexander Serenovich Dronov, who's held the title since 2011. In that Times column I cited earlier, Dylan McLean wrote, computers have removed much of the title's luster. And you would have to say that that's true, given that if you're playing Correspondence Chess, you can just cheat. cheat. Well, they don't consider it cheating. They allow the computers. Um, he does say, he says, computer programs do make it difficult to lose. And eight of the 17 players, this is in the 2012 championship, uh, eight of the 17 players in the finals have not lost a game. But the programs are not adept at long-term strategy, even with days to consider moves, because they cannot calculate far enough ahead. So humans' decisions are still important, and decisive results are possible. Stefan looks skeptical. Possible? Not probable. Possible. So correspondence chess, 
lacking a little bit of the charm of the days with the carrier pigeons and the pens. World War II's and the pens and everything, but it still yeah. exists. They, sus- Paper. they suspected they were spies and an army of pawns was going to attack over the Berlin Wall. No, no, no. The man in the gabardine suit was a spy, Mike. Ah. All right, we'd love your feedback when we talked about today. You can email us at hangupatslate.com, send us your chess moves, all that stuff. Uh, we'll gather links to the stories we discussed at slate.com slash hangup. Subscribe in iTunes at uh, itunes.com slash slatepodcasts. When you're there, leave us a comment and a rating. Become a fan of Hang Up and Listen on Facebook at facebook.com slash hangupandlisten. Our intern is Chris Laskowski. Our editor today was Alexis Diao. Our producer is Mike Bolo. Our managing producer is Joel Meyer. And the executive producer of Slate's podcast is Andy Bowers, Shaquille O'Neal, and others. Please remember Zelma Beatty. And thanks for listening. I'm David Plotz. This week on the Slate Political Gab Fest, is Thanksgiving a liberal or conservative holiday? Look for us in the Slate store or on iTunes or at slate.com slash podcasts. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.